Hey, it's Nick, back once again. Mate, I'm pausing there for a second because I'm hoping you're thinking, whoa, check out that sound quality because I just spent 12 quid on a microphone stand and a pop filter. Huh? Spend the big bucks, that is right now. Interestingly, people have been asking me how much I make from this and I can confirm that it is absolutely nothing. Yes, pick your jaws up from the floor. I run this at my own personal expense because I'm all about the history. I know, I know, I'm like a murderer who hasn't died yet, aren't I? But, but that's not suggesting I would refuse sponsorship. I mean, if you come at me with uh, like a bottle of crack and rum and a packet of squashies, I'll spread your message to, to all the listeners, no sweat. Like, Well, as long as they're not the cherry ones and that's the squashies, not the listeners, I just can't stand cherries. I'm like a shark, you know, smelling a droplet of blood in, in an ocean of water. I, I can sense a cherry in anything. I can't even eat the Haribo Tang Fastics because they've got the fake cherries in them. And they just make me wretch. They really do. Like, did no one else out there? No. But anyway, right, as funded by the bank of me, this is the first of a two-parter, huh? A two-parter of a reverent history of Ulster. This is episode six and it's called Norse in Ireland. Norse in Ireland. See what I did there? To learn of the past, the answers can't be asked. It's researching such a mystery. So I'll grab this podcast and I'll learn at last of Ulster's irreverent history. As far back as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a Viking. <laughs> But I like you, so I won't do that, you know, because I'm nice like that. But do you know who wasn't nice? Yeah, the Vikings. Now, they were horrible bastards. They would, you know, they would skewer your face just for looking at them wrong. Mere seconds before they stole all your worldly possessions, which included your family members, who they would then sell on into slavery. Well, according to legend, they were vicious barbarians, you know, uncouth. Un- unyielding, uncompromising, and as another legend, Robert de Bruce says to, uh, well, Robert de Bruce, uncompromising men are easy to admire. And you know what? He's right. They're depicted in popular culture as wild men, bouncing from place to place, terrorising the locals, you know, seizing their women and resources, stealing everything they can. I mean, it sounds like a few stagdries I've been on, but were they really that bad? Maybe. Maybe not. But if you want to find out, grab a seat, strap in, and let's get cracking. So hands up who likes the Vikings. I can't see you obviously, but I'm going to just assume that everybody's hands are up. Because who doesn't like the Vikings? I mean, they're like pirates, but even cooler. Now, yes, they do have a bad side. They're a bit rapey and pillagey, and that isn't really on now, is it? But that aside, they're pretty cool. And they love booty too, you know, which is... The only time I would use that term in this podcast, as it's a word that gets uh, it gets people all distracted, you know, all sweaty. You know, they start picturing J-Lo or Nicki Minaj or those, you know, God forbid, those Cardassians, you know, the queens of the Photoshop or, or maybe even Lorotha too. Now, she's a whopper, isn't she? It's her off the, the History Channel TV show Vikings, for weirdos who don't know. Now, that show is just one of the many stories and tales and films all about the Vikings, as they really do have this absolutely massive cult following. And... When I was growing up, it was a, a cartoon actually called Vicky the Viking. That was the big one. 
She was the female sort of child leader of like a like a scallywag crew who were all smiles and short swords. I mean, it wasn't overly representative of the Vikings themselves, but it was a nice, mild, like kind of gateway drug, as was the progression to Eric the Viking, which was a movie I saw when I was about 11, uh, written by Terry Jones of the Monty Python fame. Uh, Eric is a, a Viking who has no taste for the more kind of hedonistic ways of life and is therefore a bit of an outcast in that society. I remember it being like rolling about the floor funny. Uh, so in the name of research, I took it upon myself to watch it last week. And do you know what? It was awful. Like truly awful. As is this joke that I'm about to drop. What is it called when you get turned on by a Viking god? A Thorgasm. Oh yeah, I said it. And I'm only mildly sorry, but if it offended you, please Thorgive me. Right, honestly, no, I promise. That's the last one. Fortunately, for you. Uh. So just who were the Vikings? Well, let's start by saying it's kind of incorrect to call them Vikings, as that's actually a doing word, a verb. To Viking originally meant to raid and trade, but now it's stuck as a noun, and what a cool noun. Viking. Just sounds angry and intense, doesn't it? You know, they came from Scandinavia. Countries such as uh, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. But where did they come from originally? Well, like geneticists, just what I said that, have suggested that there were periods of mass migration from Southern European hunter gatherers, Middle Eastern farmers, and also Russians and Mongols, just looking for something new. But it's also important to note that not all people who lived in Scandinavia around the time of the Viking Age, which was about, say, you know, 700-ish to 1100-ish AD, not all of them were Vikings. Scandinavia wasn't just a production line solely for for scary bastards. You know, it was actually quite a small percentage that actually went into the Viking way of life or went to Viking. Many Scandinavians, they had normal professions, you know, farmers, fishermen, landowners, you know, just people that aren't really cut out for a life of skullduggery at sea. For those that were, those that yearned for, for adventure and mischief, they crossed the oceans in state-of-the-art longboats, for the Vikings were both expert boat builders and highly accomplished seamen, and that's S-E-A for anyone sniggering out there. They built vessels with keels, which were thick central like spines, and that gave them added manoeuvrability and strength, allowing them to cross oceans and attack up rivers. It didn't even take ten men to sail the boats, but they could carry up to a hundred of the mad bastards on board. Mad pagan bastards, that is, for they believed in gods such as Odin and Thor and Loki. And this influenced their behaviours. They would pray, they would make idols, and they would kill in the name of their chosen deities. Because that's what gods want, isn't it? Just look to death to show how much their flock loved them. Well, the Odins of this world were in luck, as the Vikings were highly adept in the art of mass murder. They used hit and run tactics at first, like swiftly speeding on the beaches with their long ships and then leaping out and screaming their love to the heavens as they charged at their coastal targets. They, they carried swords or giant axes ready to cleave the head or limbs from anybody that stood in their way. They did not however have horned helmets, that much is an uh, invention of the 19th century. But they would cover their heads in leather skullcaps, or possibly with the faces of their vanquished foes. Now, okay, I made that last bit up, but you did believe me, didn't you? Why? Because it seems so plausible. I mean, it's probably because of the impression you get from a small sect of the Vikings. Their version of the special forces, like the uh, the Persian Immortals or Cobra's Crimson Guard, the guys known as Berserkers. They transitioned into a state called Berserker Gang. 
in which they would recognize nobody, not friend nor foe. They would fight until until they fell, screaming and slashing in a blood fury. There, there are different reports of them wearing like wolf skins or even going bare-chested into battle. No armor required. And how did they get into that frenzied state? Was it drugs or God, maybe, that made them that way? It, it matters not. If you had the misfortune to face one, it was kill or be killed. There was no other option. They can't be bargained with. They can't be reasoned with. They don't feel pity or remorse or fear. And they absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. Yeah, I went all Kyle Reese there, but, but that's what they were. Shock troops, the kind of implacable warriors that you want on your side during the battle, but, but wouldn't want to necessarily hang out with for a beer after. You know, the character we met in podcast two, uh, the Bloody Nine, is exactly of that ilk. So too, uh, the Usher champion, Cahoolan, and even World War Two hero, Blair Paddy Main. And yeah, I've kind of crowbarred them in here because I'll get around to doing podcasts about them at some point. So watch out for that. There were also women who fought. Not many in, in the records, but, but there's some. You know, shield maidens, so to speak. Some may say, you know, wise up, women can't fight. But I would counter that and point them to any CrossFit gym. In there, you will invariably see just a horde of badass chicks, you know, with their tiny shorts as their armour and, and the barbells as their battle axes, with their incessant sets of front squats and overtly aggressive demeanour. I mean, they're just a perfect fit for shield maidenry. You can see it in their pent-up anger. You know, it's a rage that, that burns within, a fury built up from, from missing that final lift, you know, that last rep. It, it's scary, yet you're like bearing witness to, to a pack of rampaging gorillas at a zoo. You just can't take your eyes from them. You can imagine the terror as like a boatload of them are released on a beach and you know, just stampede towards you, wide-eyed and unkempt, you know, drool, like sloshing from their chins, screaming profanities as, as they raise their glinting axes to the sky, ready to cleave your head from its very shoulders without a second's thought. I mean, it's terrifying, that notion. And for fear of getting lynched, they'll maybe draw to a close. Though we also have to speak of the Valkyries, the daughters of Odin. Their job was to carry the dead warriors off to, to Valhalla, the Viking heaven, which was exactly where they wanted to be, as it meant they had died in combat. It seems so obviously absurd to us, you know, war angels? I mean, what's next? What are the terms of the wine, you know? Come on. But we mentioned there how there's a Viking stereotype, how they, they smell of murder and theft, but there were cultural aspects beyond their paganry. They seemed to have a code they lived to, Heavily influenced by, by their gods, obviously. We see this in a book called the Codus Rexus. It was written to Vellum in the late 13th century, so a bit after the fact, but it's a series of poems that give us a, a glimpse into their value system. The first one goes, Cattle die, and kinsmen die, and so one dies oneself. But a noble name will never die, if good renown one gets. Now, if you can get past the fact that it doesn't rhyme, then I, I think it's just advising the reader to do deeds that allow your name to live on in, in immortality. And that's that's a common theme in most cultures. So there's nothing outlandish about that, but, but it's interesting. Another one says, Wake early if you want another man's life or land. No lamb for the lazy wolf. No battle is won in bed. Again, no rhyming, which is a bit of a shame, but, but it's good advice. Just don't sit there and covet someone else or something else. Go out and get it for yourself. Because if you don't, nobody else is going to do it for you. Now, the debate is maybe whether they meant 
go out and work hard to get money and buy what you want or just go out and actually take what you want. And it's not too far of a stretch to think that many would have taken those words literally. And this is maybe shown as they, they ransacked for wealth, hidden numerous places that seemed to have little to no protection. For a Viking, a warrior, battle-hardened in a harsh land, you know, possessing a mind, buoyed by the thought of rampage and war, whose skills had been refined by hunting and fighting, they were almost disappointed by the lack of resistance. However, they were going to have to get used to it, as they found a whole host of these rich and unguarded targets, you know, on the outlying islands and coastlines of Scotland and Ireland. And, to be fair, if they were disappointed... They didn't show any bloody mercy. So before a fire, headlong into the Viking raids, we need to discuss what what the state of Ulster was at the time, around about 7800 AD. Well, it was a land of family feuds and, and blood grudges, where each clan wanted nothing more than, than to take power for themselves, and fully believing that it was exactly their right to do so. Maybe this was due to the Brian Laws, which stipulated that when a king died, all of his male line, his, uh, his terrifying, those that shared a common great-grandfather could claim hereditary. It led to prolonged squabbles and scraps, whole broods of ingrates laying claim to the rights of a recently deceased dead dude that they probably had never met, yet felt entitled to be his successor as he just so happened to share his blood type. They would invariably end up all mystified and militant when they were told to feck off, as in reality it was just a nice law that pretty much kept the O'Neill High King rotation policy in full swing. By this stage though, the Northern O'Neills had built upon much of the work done by the forebearer, Nile of the Nine hostages, and had extended their power base to cover almost half of Ulster. Conversely, this had vastly weakened the Ula tribes, who were pressed up against the window of the east coast, with the Argula like the little kid in the car, wedged awkwardly in between their two older siblings. And yet even within these mini-kingdoms, there was regular trouble, outbreaks of peace and civility, the equivalent of hen's teeth. Despite the incessant violence, the province of Ulster had been heavily uh, religified, if that's even a word, by St. Patrick around the middle of the, the 5th century. He seemed to concentrate on the north of the island, and religion was spreading fast. Monasteries were popping up everywhere, many with towns and support systems forming around them and generating great wealth at such places as Bangor and St. Patrick. There, students would study like scripture, math, music, the classics, with the long game being to send them across the country to pass to the locals. Some would even go as far afield as the European mainland, literally chasing the ashes of the Roman Empire and trying to help the natives get their lives back on track. Religion finding a thriving home amongst the desolate and the needy. There were many monks that remained on the island, as they were, in a sense, the priests of the day, but hopefully less into pedophilia. And sometimes they took a break from learning to sow crops, and raise livestock and brew beer and mead. Well, they devoured the beer. The mead was not for their cause. Now, they sold it to make money, obviously with a label attached, asking the consumer to please drink responsibly, thereby absolving themselves of any guilt, you know. And in, in many ways, it's just like how the Buckfast Abbey does it now. And despite building criticism, they're certainly not to blame for, say, the actions of the youth of Ulster. You know, the guys who neck bottles of Bucky down the park and then wreck the show and wreak havoc. I mean, you can't blame them at all. They... I would certainly say it's self-inflicted. I mean, take for example the story of my mate at Sandy's Cove in Donegate. It took him about, I think it was 12 minutes or so, to drain the whole bottle. I mean, that's not bad. We were around 15 or so. Um, and he reveled in his glory. I mean, he loved it, but it was short-lived. His, his triumph turned to torment and he spent the next few hours boking in the sea. His valiant attempt was scrubbed from the book, but but one guy who didn't book was an Icelandic tramp. He was hanging out with a gawa during a qualifier on the island a few years back. He was egged on to down the whole bottle and as total a showman as he does so. Now, I'm not one for glorifying drink and exploits, but 
I've linked to the video in the show notes at irreverenthistory.com slash 006. I mean, purely for scientific reasons, of course. And the Gawa, by the way, is the Green and White Army, the long-suffering supporters of the Northern Ireland football team. But cry for us not, as after decades of hurt, we now seem to have a team we can actually be proud of. You know, truly proud of. But can you guess whose family are at the helm? It's only the O'Neills, isn't it? With Michael O'Neill, the main man. He's a legend, though. But talking about groups, the Gauls, the locals, the indigenous Irish, had at the time little or, or no wealth. The, the O'Neills did, you know, obviously. And they saw the power that religion had to control people. They pushed Armagh, as in, you know, St. Patrick's Choice, the ecclesiastical uh, centre of Ireland. They patronised it, allowed it to flourish, and wealth started rolling in and spreading to the outlying monasteries. But with wealth comes opulence, and this opulence was spotted by many, many an envious eye, especially from the poor. You know, bands of these banded gulls would raid monasteries and use the proceeds to buy livestock, as that was in fact the de facto uh, currency back then, you know, wealth measured in cattle, uh, like bling back then wasn't so much bitches and hoes more calves and foals, you know what I mean but we get this kind of information from the monks who, they were also the historians the note takers on life, the record keepers it's from their tongues that we hear most of most of the accounts of the time recorded in their annals, written extensively on the island of Iona near Scotland, it was a monastery of the declining Delriada kingdom and from there, they would leave and spread word to the Picts and the Angles. But more importantly, it was one of the first sites to be raided by a new breed on the block. A new type of foe that, that wasn't taken overly seriously at first. Seen originally as, as merely a raider that would hit and run before moving on. But they were wrong. This foe would be in their faces for, for the next 300 odd years. We are of course talking about the Vikings. One of the big dogs in Europe around his time was the Franco king Charlemagne and he had taken umbrage with the lawless uh, Frisian pirates from the northern seas of Britain so he decided to absolutely eradicate them from the waters and it was in their absence that the Viking longboats first appeared. They were first spotted around the coasts of Scotland and Ireland and were generally ignored by the warring tribes who, who had their hands full already and were quite happy to see their rivals getting smacked about a bit by the strangers. Even the raids on monasteries, while draining the prestige of the local area, didn't seem to warrant much alarm, and certainly not for the everyday lives of the natives, who were more interested in trying to feed their families. But then the Vikings came back, again, and again, and again. They hit Rathlin Island in 795, and while they seemed to be skirting and scouting the perimeter of the island, you know, attacking like distant locations like Roscommon, Wexford, parts of Dublin, you know, they're not very close to each other, but they came back hard for Ulster. They were generally better armed than the locals. You know, a cohesive uh, fighting unit with superior tactics. And they met with only sporadic resistance because the Ulsters were just not united. They were so spread out and hated each other. Around 825, the Vikings parked their boats in Strangford Lock, hopped in the train and popped up the banger, ravaging the legacy of St. Congles before massacring as many bishops and students as possible. Then they moved on to devastate Mavilla which, if you've ever had the misfortune to visit, it seems to be still in the process of recovery. Like, Don Patrick was also plundered. Armagh as well. You know, it got hit three times in one month in the year 832 by the North Sea King uh, Turgesius, who was also known as Turges, or sometimes by his double hard name, Thorkels. Thorkels saw that there were numerous Viking groups taking roots 
in Ireland and wanted to unite them. He wanted to use this as a, a way to repaganize the entire island. He hated Christianity. He saw that Armagh, the centre of religion for the whole of Ireland, was the place to really stamp his authority, so he made a beeline for it, hacking through any one of religion on the way. Upon arrival at his destination, he burned the symbolic stone church right to the ground. He was what Cockneys would call a proper wronging. This is reflected in the comments of uh, the historian Geoffrey Keaton. He stated that the great Tarmalan, called the scourge of God, could not be compared to him for cruelty. An example of this is in the tax that he levied from the local chieftains. He called it nose money. And I know to some of you that term may mean something slightly different, but in this case it was named for the part of the body that he removed if the tribute was not paid in a timely manner. Unfortunately for him, hell hath no fury like an Osterman scorn, and his acts of arson in Armagh had really pissed off the Christian High King at the time, old Malky of the Own Hills, who finally said enough was enough and had the Norsemen captured and uh, then he drowned him in a lake. Which is nice. Christian behaviour, isn't it? There's a few other cases of the populace rising up against the Norsemen, but there's not many. In 811, the annals of Ulster talk about a slaughter of the heathens by the Ula, but there's scant details, so that could really mean anything. Those angry swords could centre stage once more in 852, when after Armagh had been smashed yet again, they rose up to fight a group of, of marauding Vikings from Dublin, who had launched their attacks across Carlingford Lock. Ulster looked like it may be overwhelmed when, possibly channeling the spirit of a certain Randy Orton, a bunch of fair foreigners came right out of nowhere and banded with the Ula to fight off the Dubliners, the dark foreigners, and send them homewards to think again. Now the details are, are not overly specific here either, but we can maybe surmise that these were the blonde-haired Swedish Vikings, possibly fighting against the darker main Danes, showing a split in the Vikings that had thus far gone unrecognised. Now, while Ulster itself may have borne the brunt of, of many early attacks, those who suffered the most were probably the men of God, the monks. They had given up their lives to the Lord, whether by choice or necessity, it matters not. But they probably expected to be writing books, drinking beer and heading out around the continent on working holidays. What they probably didn't expect was to be put to the sword by well-groomed barbarians. Unlike the infamous Shaolin monks in China, there were no men of, of fighting ability amongst this particular choir. It was prayer that was their chosen form of protection, incredibly ill-suited against the barbarous nature of the invaders. We could conservatively estimate that thousands upon thousands were massacred throughout the age in the name of loot and glory. Their white tunics stained red with their own blood, their hallowed grounds rammed full of the corpses of those that were not burnt or enslaved. You think this would have a detrimental effect on the numbers applying? I mean, it's hardly an incentive, but you gotta hand it to them. They were a stoic and single-minded bunch, those monks. And that is not to say that they were happy with their choice. They certainly lived a life of fear, that's not really in question. One anonymous monk encapsulates this in a four-liner poem that now resides in the monastery of St Gall in Switzerland and was possibly scribed here at Bangor Abbey. He says, Bitter is the wind tonight. It tosses the ocean's white hair. Tonight I fear not the fierce warriors of Norway coursing on the Irish Sea. Now, that's another no-rhymer, but it says a lot for being only four lines. He hints at the coldness of the night and, and of the rough sea outside, but also of his happiness that on that night he doesn't have to worry about, you know, getting scalped by the havens. He, he can rest easy, you know, he's probably got a straw mattress in, a, in like a stone room, but he's happy. 
and he's even being a bit cheeky. He's calling into question the seafaring skills or possibly the manliness of the Vikings, you know, saying they're unable or even unwilling to sail on such a wild and fierce sea. I mean, you can really sense his relief, you know, despite the, the poor conditions that he's living within, he's content with, like, you know, his few hours of safety. You just wonder how often he prays for a rough sea and how often those prayers are answered, you know. If the waters are calm at night, does he ever sleep? Does anyone? You know, for fear of being attacked in the night. For fear of the dark ships arriving, silent, led by the wooden dragon carved into the boy. For fear of the menace that lies out of sight, the, the murderers, marauders, the malcontents, you know, sharpen their axes, moving their minds to massacre mode. Their eyes resting dull, waiting for the call to arms, their muscles taught their thoughts on nothing but carnage and larceny. Then the shouts of war commence. Their eyes blaze open wide, burning alive with, with adrenaline as their longship crashes into the soft sand of the beach. In a split second, they bounding over the side feet, landing with a splash, heart pounding as they charge recklessly towards the light, screaming oaths of victory to their false gods, the first kill they barely even notice, nor that of the alarm bells tolling from the church tower, their axes slash and chop into anything that resists, and then it's over. Men lay dead or dying, women and children taken for domestic slavery at best, the sailors are ransacked, the buildings raised. As they clamber back onto the boats with their loot, dismembered corpses lie scattered across the beach and the bells ring out no longer. The only sounds are, are the crack of the burning wood in the wind. The thick smell of sulfur and death lingers on the air, their journey home set to the backdrop of a burning bonfire. A bonfire that was once a time. With that in mind, you can maybe understand if the monks changed their chosen colour of tunic, you know, from like white to brown, can you, you know, maybe to hide something. But conversely, by, by the mid-1860s, the Vikings seemed to have fallen in love with the Irish coast, and the annals themselves stopped referring to them as foreigners, and calling them Norse Irish or Norse Gauls. I mean, maybe there just comes a time when raping and pillaging becomes tedious, you know, when murder becomes just a little dull. However, some just enjoyed a good old kick-off, a ransack of a town. They enjoyed it too much, so they became mercenaries. With their mixture of Norse and Gaelic blood, the Gaelgotta, also known as the Sons of Death, started hiring themselves out to the highest bidder. Gaelgottal means foreign Gaul, which is interesting as Gaul itself means foreigner, so technically it means foreign foreigner. If my Irish is on point, which, I mean, it's maybe not. As for the Vikings who now wanted to settle, well, they started town building, not so much in Ulster as it was a revolutionary wild land, but more down south where the locals had a bit more chill and we see this at Limerick, Waterford, Wexford and, and of course Dublin. Olaf the White, king of the Dublin Norse, he made the political decision to turn Christian as he thought it would yield more profits for his business. And in 860 he married the daughter of Adfinlath, king of the Northern O'Neill. He thought this would help him get a foothold in Ulster, as there were only very small settlements at Larne, Carlingford, Strangford, and also at Ballyholm, mainly due to the locals being just a tad unwelcoming. The marital alliance backfired slightly in 866 when Adfinlaf burnt the unguarded Viking families out of the province while the warriors were across the sea for a swage in Bunny School. It must be noted that it's probably not a coincidence that we don't really hear of his daughter after this date. 
the settling Vikings, rather than seeking further revenge, decided to dig in and diversify their portfolio. Moving away from just raiding and human trafficking and delving into protection rackets, which basically puts them just a kneecap and a pasty bap away from being a legitimate Ulster terrorist. If you're unsure, a protection racket is going into a business and demanding money from said business to protect it from you, which is sort of how the Americans have become the self-proclaimed greatest country on earth, approaching uh, other countries or nations with demands for a base in close proximity to the supposed axis of evil or bombing the shit out of them if they refuse. Now while obviously maintaining an aura of violence and extortion, the Vikings, not the Americans, were becoming great traders, and not just of people. The ports of Southern Ireland saw massive increases in wealth and affluence as the Norsemen imported and exported goods from all over Europe and Asia. The slight con, the kicker, was that they would bring their assortment of produce and sell it to the locals, then get another group of Vikings to steal it back and sell it on again, twice the profits. Now, I couldn't find any evidence for what I just said, as I kind of just made it up, but I think it fits their roguish nature, and if you've been previously all in for murder, it doesn't seem that far of a stretch, does it? There is, however, some actual evidence for something that might be an even bigger stretch, that of the Norsemen and the monks becoming BFFs. Yes, I mean, I know it smells like a total ripper, doesn't it? I feel like the past century or two, the bearded bastards have been slaughtering the bully ones and stealing all their gear. But the monks, they were as resilient as they were learned, and it was maybe an attempt to, to civilise the apparent barbarians by teaching them to read and write, and it resulted in the Vikings spending more time annotating their histories and less time butchering the locals. And there's another side by this, this cunning ploy of the monks, as it's no coincidence that the most readily available texts were their scriptures, and it had the effect of further adding to the increasing number of Christian converts, and therefore vastly reducing the body count on the island. As the Christians don't kill people, do they? Well, it proved effective in a sense, as it led to a period of near normality for Ireland, whereby it was mostly interprovincial wars that saw the corpses mount. Armagh was still being raided with traditional irregularity, but for most of the country it was almost safe to go outside again, for a while at least. In and around the beginning of the 10th century, the Vikings returned en masse, hordes of ships vomiting men from the sea, descending from Iceland, which had been saturated by their kind. Those that had been unable to claim land there were smitten by tales of Ireland's green pastures, and were determined to take some of that for themselves. Nile Gunloth, son of Ad Finlath, united the clan O'Neill with a play of join us and took the fight to the trespassers. With the Argula and the Ula in tow, he took the armies of the ancient kingdoms of Leith Coon, or Conshaf, which is basically Ulster, Connaught and Meath, and rushed towards Munster before swinging round to bail out the King of Leinster, who had been overwhelmed by the resurgence in the Viking numbers and was basically a vassal state, complying with their every whim. Unfortunately for Niall, his troops were massacred at the Battle of Island Bridge on the 14th of September, 919, just outside of Dublin. Two years later, these new Norse came back to Ulster, intent on stealing and ravaging whatever wasn't nailed down. They met with the usual fierce resistance, but what they hadn't planned for was the ingenuity of none other than those pesky monks again. They had uh, either built or possibly just started to utilise round towers. These were thin cylindrical fortifications of stone with, with like removable ladders that led to the entrance, possibly as high as six feet up. Well, that's the story. Anyway, apparently the monks hid their stuff in there, you know, their books, their valuables, their trinkets, whatever. But to think that these Vikings, you know, the designers of the longboat, the masters of trade, the warriors of legend, were unable to enter the tower because the door was above head height. I mean, that's quite frankly complete bollocks, isn't it? Now, I've been to one many years ago now, but I've been to one in Antrim, and its entrance is not that much bigger than me. Admittedly, there was no shaven-headed Bible basher trying to jab me in the face with a spear, but I still scaled up the entrance pretty quick. It's really just a decent footer up. 
And that supposedly stumped a Norseman. Wise up. Though the esteemed David Icke, you know, he of the worldwide lizard conspiracy fame, he pronounces the round towers magical, the result of dark paganry. And with many such towers having seen throughout the world, all from the same era, but with no possibility of collaboration between cultures. It's quite strange, really. I mean, maybe it was witchcraft that halted the Vikings, or maybe they were just distracted by the military prowess of Murtaugh, Niall Gundaw's son, who beat them at their own game, a naval battle on Strangford Lock in 926, then took the fight to Dublin, setting it ablaze in 939, before chasing the fleeing armies to Scotland in 941, where he fell in combat two years later. The 941 is a really important date for another reason, as it was the year of the birth of Brian Baru, someone who would go on to be described by many as the greatest Irishman of all time. However, to hear about that, you just have to wait until next time, as this is the end of the first of this two-parted podcast. I was going to make up a bit of a spoof here about how I had to split it in two, as it was just such a big topic to cover, which is actually true, but it's more because the new pro-evolution soccer is just out, and I can sense it called me to play like a siren of old. You know, there's some other interference in the air too. You know, yes, it's the jeers of all the FIFA fans out there, but I won't respond just yet. No, I'll wait until their voices break. Anyway, if you want to know more about the podcast or to hit me up on social media about ProWave or any questions you have, you can find all the jive at irreverenthistory.com. And if you enjoyed this and you wanted to tell your mates about it, you know, that'd be just swell, wouldn't it? But before we finish, you may have noticed that there's someone who didn't get a mention. A certain Ragnar Lothbrok. Now, mostly as he doesn't really cross paths with Ireland. However, the ladies love him, or at least love the guy who plays him, Travis Fimmel. And a few have probably swooned at this very mention, you know, going all scissor-faced as I speak. But did you know that Lothbrook means baggy breeches? Or big pants to any crazy yanks that may be listening? So if you are from America, hold on to your fanny packs. And I'll leave you with the last words of Ragnar, baggy breeches, as an homage to, to the dying of the pre-Christian Viking. Gladdens me to know that Odin prepares for a feast. Soon I shall be drinking ale from a curved horn. This hero that comes into Valhalla does not lament his death. I shall not enter Odin's hall with fear. There I shall wait for my sons to join me. And when they do, I will bask in their tales of triumph. The Aesir will welcome me. My death comes without apology. And I welcome the Valkyries to summon me home. Right, I'm off to play Provo. Leaders.